You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years of This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Pupko. Hello, I'm Avram Kivalevich, and this week has been, if you want to believe the stock market and you want to believe some of the other indicators, a very decent week for the United States and the ripple effect throughout the world. Not only has uh, the process begun for the transition to the Biden presidency, we'll hear more about that from Rabbi Pupko later in his prognosticator hat, but it's also, of course, been, Rabbi, as you know, uh, a week, and I guess it's been the last couple of weeks that we've been heralding the real progress uh, that has been made on the vaccine. 95% Pfizer's uh, publicities are saying, publicity campaign is saying 95% effectiveness. There's a number of other companies. Um, there's a, a real talk about how the vaccine is already going to be administered. There seems to be no doubt that it's effective. I happened to just uh, spoken right before we got on the air here with my son-in-law who told me his brother, a prominent rabbi, is part of uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the trials that's going on for Novastar, I think it is, and he's feeling good. So it looks like the, uh, COVID might be getting in the rear mirror. There are going to be people that aren't going to uh, going to be a little bit uh, worried about taking some of this vaccine into their system, um, but. It sounds like these are positive things that the Rabboni Shalom is lifting in a way using the great chokhma of humanity, working through them to finally lift this scourge of death and terror away from us. So these are things which I know, Rabbi Pupko, you've become a Canadian, so you had your Thanksgiving in October, but uh, our November Thanksgiving for sure would include Shevach Vahido that there is that vaccine on the horizon. Now, um, I know that uh, you've got some ideas here about this. I know you're very excited about it for not just uh, the the sucker and support that it's going to give to to humanity that's thirsting for it, but I think that you're seeing here something perhaps even bigger. So why, why, why don't you uh, uh, illuminate us? You know, there's an interesting Jewish history of vaccine. Um you know, first of all, the the new vaccines. Uh, the CEO of Pfizer is uh, is Albert Borla, who's a the child of a of a sacred and holy, but nearly completely decimated Jewish community of uh, of Salonika. Uh, and he's the CEO of Pfizer. The lead scientist for uh, Moderna is an Israeli uh, Tal Katz. Um, did I get that name wrong? Uh, anyway, the lead scientist is uh, is an Israeli, and um, and Tom, I'm sorry, Tal Zaks. And, um, and we all remember, I mean, we shouldn't know the story of the polio vaccine in the, in the 1950s and 60s of uh, Sabin and Salt, who, uh, who uh, engineered the, the polio vaccine. People who are a little older than us, the last generation of people who remember the terror of the summer, of people getting polio and, and how that relieved everyone. But there's a story in, of Jews and vaccines that Let me me just interrupt for a second because I'm I'm probably going to forget later, but those that want to really be immersed in what it was like uh, should uh, check out Philip Roth's, one of his last novels, Nemesis, where you really, he really takes you into that summer 
of the polio. Like my, my oldest brother, who's 12 years older than me, he, he still remembers polio. I don't. And uh, we, were the, we were the first generation of kids raised in the post-vaccine era. And, um, and, the, and the terror of polio was, was uh, gripped Jewish parents, every parent really, but you know the stories that we know about from our own community. And, and when the vaccine came, I mean, I, you know, it, it was, go back and read the newspapers from when the vaccine was announced. I mean, banner headlines across the world. There was these people, there was a, a ticker tape parade uh, for, uh, for the doctor. I mean, incredible celebration. But there was, but the history goes back further. There was a, there was a, there was a Jewish fellow born in what was then Russia and is now the Ukraine named uh, Waldemir Hafkin, Mortgebol was his Jewish name, Waldemir Hafkin, who was the doctor who, uh, who devised the vaccine for uh, cholera and the bubonic plague. Uh, medical historians will tell you he more than anyone else. Uh, uh, let me put it differently. He saved more lives than any other, any other doctor in history uh, for the cholera and bubonic uh, vaccines. He was an Orthodox Jew. He wrote a book, actually, defending traditional Jewish life. He was a passionate Zionist who actually approached the Aga Khan uh, to help resettle Jews in, in, in what was then Palestine. And he, uh, uh, it's a remarkable story. He he was part of the Jewish Defense League in, in his city, fighting off pogrom chicks during, during a pogrom in the Ukraine. He was actually arrested in an anti-Semitic roundup and thankfully released. He trained at the Louis Pasteur Institute in France. It's a remarkable story. He lived, he lived, he was born in 1860, died in 1930. Till today, there are medical institutes in India named for him. He did most of his work in India. He went to the address of the outbreak of the plague, the cholera epidemic, and, uh, and he, and he tested the vaccine on himself. It's a remarkable story of medical heroism and, and, and genius. And there's a very, again, a, a fascinating entanglement of a leading Jewish doctors. Still today with COVID, of Jewish doctors involved in the, in the production and, and, and the devising of vaccines. But if you think about it, as you know, it goes back to the late, very late 18th century, um, where, where vaccines were first uh, uh, conceived. Again, in, 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 in the in the Western world, in the Western world, there's a long history. Right, yeah. the, we we know of the ancient history. Right, there's an part, ancient history. Part, part of I think I know I, I don't want to steal your thunder, but no, no, you know, go ahead. We have you know we have a history between us of stealing each other's thunder, yes, thunder finishing yeah. finishing each other's sentences, but not uh, not opening up the lurid thoughts inside of our brains. But uh, the as you know, right, that the you know this was something that. Uh, the ancient uh, Chinese and right. from the Arabic cultures. It was really, again, as you know, in, 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 during the smallpox, um, a consistent uh, death, <laughs> wafting of death throughout the smallpox era. Finally, you know, you had uh, these reports uh, that there was ways that uh, this can be cured. Some of it had to do with British imperialism right. who were discovering, hmm, what are those natives doing? You know, they're they're somehow getting a cure by... Uh, injecting themselves right. with with a small dose, and of course, this was Edward Jenner, um, who was the, the the very courageous Christian, right. who stood in, in in the face of everyone and began uh, the his scientific uh, I don't know what you would call it the scientific exploration and development of what eventually becomes the smallpox vaccine. Right. So yes, there is a it's almost a history I think of of, of the West. 
discovering the wisdom of the East. Right? <laughs> it's like the West, we know every, we're the ones who are on the right. vanguard of enlightenment. And then, hmm, this thing is killing everybody. Hey, they know something we don't, which is the amazing counterintuitive right. idea, which I think you're very fascinated with. Right. right? I so mean, go the, ahead. The, I, I think the next example of that is sushi. <laughs> Meaning that uh, the that, East, the East learning, the West learning from the East. Yes. Yes. And it's, <laughs> right. It's now become, I think, the uh, well. I don't know. I haven't been in, in a, at a at a wedding in a real way for a long time. I've I've shown up at the very end and waved and said hi, you know, and uh, beneath a mask. But it has become, I think, uh, sushi. You mentioned it. It's like the prime Jewish food now. Sushi, sushi. is sushi is the new chopped liver. Yes. It's it's. It's it's incredible how. <laughs> no, it used to be. I used to cut when I first came here, Rabbi, and go to weddings, and they still had chopped liver mold. Right, right. I and, haven't seen a chopped liver mold in, in maybe twenty five years. And, it's been they replaced had, by sushi. Yeah, well, and well, I, and I personally still prefer chopped liver. Well, I always, you know, sort of like Edward Scissorhands, you know, the the shape, <laughs> the shape of the of the liver mountains, right? There was maybe you could have it in the shape of a chicken or the shape of a bar mitzvah boy or various organs in his body. So definitely there was a uh, the, the chopped liver has gone to the side, and you're right, sushi has replaced it. But you're right, a discovery. Uh, the discoveries of the greatness of the East. But go yeah. ahead. I know that you. I know that you're very uh, taken by the the metaphor of what well, I say. The meta- to me, you know, I listen. Everything I want to say in the next few minutes is completely sophomoric, but I still think it's interesting. <laughs> what I mean by that is, we all know a little bit about the philosophy of science, how Einstein's theory of relativity potentially has an impact on the ethics of the 20th century, where the notion of relativity bleeds into uh, the, the moral universe, uh, where the note, where, where the question of is, does the earth orbit uh, the sun or the sun orbit the earth? Are we the center of existence? That changes how man looks at the world of science, does impact how we look at the world ethically, morally, philosophically. So there is this notion that, you know, that, that, that science is not, quarantine away from how we think of ourselves and our place in the world. And, and I, would, I, I would venture to say that something very easy about vaccine that is relevant to how we as Orthodox Jews navigate our, 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 our lives is that what vaccines teach us is that if you're worried about a threat from the outside, the best way to deal with it is to inject it in yourself and learn how to, and, and learn how to live with it rather than become a theological or sociological bubble boy, right? The bubble boy is the one who is remarkably vulnerable because he has never been exposed. And the fact is that the more exposed you are, the stronger you get. And this we know from, you know, from the kids who are, who are raised in overly sterile environments versus kids who are allowed to play in the dirt. And, um, and, and the idea of a vaccine is, if you're concerned about a threat from the outside, the best way to defend yourself is not to build a wall between yourself and the threat, but to, in fact, imbibe some of the threat, right? Inject the threat. And that's how you learn how to navigate the world. And when an Orthodox Jew thinks about the secular world, not to say it's a virus, but when you think about the outside world and you view it with some trepidation or, or, or fear, the best way to learn how to live with it, the best way to teach our kids how to live with it, is to, in fact, 
uh, allow exposure. It is only through exposure that you can generate resistance to its negative impact. And I think so. I think vaccine, as I said, this would be sophomore, but I think there's a lesson to be learned from vaccine. Science holds truth, truths that are applicable. It's also interesting if you read about, and again, yeah, the science is far from settled, uh, but why children seem to be have a stronger immunity. Very interesting. One of the theories is that ch- children's immune system doesn't have as much memory. And therefore, it knows better how to react to COVID. Adults' immune system have a memory and therefore sometimes misunderstand the, the COVID virus, react in, in, in the wrong way to it, and sometimes overreact, which is the overreaction which you've read about, which can create its own problems. And sometimes the less memory you have helps you. And that's a lesson for Jews as well. In other words, sometimes, sometimes uh, we, uh, we react triggered solely by our memory, and therefore we don't always understand that the, that, that the present moment is in fact distinguishable from the events we remember. You know, there's, I mean, there are those who interpret the Maisa Meimeriva like that, with Maisa In other words, the Rishan who say it was a legitimate request to ask for war. What was he so angry about? But the point is he had, he reacted based on his memory of the times when the Jews complained inappropriately, and his reaction was triggered by that. Sometimes we remember too much. Sometimes, and again, I don't want to overstate the case. I think the greatest problem Jews have today is not excessive memory, but too little memory. But there are times when we do, in fact, suffer from excessive triggers of our immune system, of our collective Jewish immune system. And sometimes we see threats where there aren't threats. Sometimes, rarely, but sometimes. Well, you know, you know, we call this emeritus rex, and you definitely have shown us in two fashion, <laughs> twice, how one can take uh, what's, uh, what's a scientific phenomena and been able to apply it uh, through the typical rabbinical drush. But I think I, I, I'm impressed, uh, honestly. Number two rings m- actually more interestingly to me than number one. I, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't call it sophomoric, Ruby. You know, because <laughs> you know, I, I you know, I wouldn't say you know this is you know ah ah. You know, I actually oh, because we all know that. Rav Kook Sotzal, it's just not original. <laughs> the second one is original. The first one is not sophomore. Well, it's original because I've never read anything by Rabbi Kook. Uh, yeah, I tried, but to me he's completely incomprehensible. Yeah, well, he had a problem with language, but in, in the Sefer Arpole Tohar and other places, uh, you, what he talks about is the two ways to deal. He doesn't use the 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 vaccine is emotional, but he talks about the two ways, and this was one of the major themes in his life, the two ways of dealing with the threat of secularism, the threat oh, of, okay. of science. No, it's so certainly we, far from original. I just, but, it, but the idea of comparing the vaccine. No, 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 I think that's good. mildly uh, interesting. Yes, yes. No, no, I agree. But, you know, but, it went to 10, it was a 4. I'm not saying it was a 7. No, well, I, I think it definitely, it really depends what your audience is. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think if you're preaching to the converted, it's one way. Are you going to change minds? And I guess, uh, you know, maybe maybe it will, because, you know, really, um, you know, as Rev. Cook said, it does more than just inoculate you to the evil. It actually does something more, which is what it actually elevates and right, that's it, more it, 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 it could actually make that interaction holy. Right. Because 
again, Rav Cook was a great believer in the incredible transformative power of our souls and what we can do. So, you know, the perfect community uh, would actually, you're right, they don't, they don't need the bubble, but actually what comes in is uh, sort of like, it radiates through the prism of their mind and soul, and it becomes something incredible, and it becomes something beautiful and magnificent, and all leading to, to positive things with Shem Shemaim. So that, again, I think that that is a great metaphor, and I like it. I'm just saying that I've heard things of that. I, I think the second point you made about sometimes not remembering is great. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, as you say, you know, we've done this program a number of times and mo- most of what we, the chemistry is based on our, our memories, our memories of your memories of your dad, uh, the memories of our relationship and what we've been through. It's very difficult to dis- to, to detach. Um, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to even look at the world if you don't have that memory behind you. The fact that sometimes you need, as you say, to actually push things to the side and shunt them completely, that's something that is a struggle, especially if you believe by doing that, you give up your individuality. Uh, you have to find a core individuality that's even something greater. Maybe, as you say, almost like the childlike innocence that that, that is willing to, hey, I've never heard about that before. I'm willing to erase the blackboard. That's something that I think uh, is an important message. Hard to do. Uh, uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> Again, I mean, there are we all have things we would much prefer to forget, but we can't. And yet, uh, we can't become prisoners of of what of, of these things. And I think you're correct. Sometimes we fall victim because we are prisoners to old ways of acting and old ways of thinking. And uh, even though we know it's killing us, we don't want to give up ourselves. I, 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 whether those are the lessons to take out of this, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I would just say, I mean, we, we do realize that, that and I, I don't want people to take your drush and my uh, seal of approval on it for people to think that if you are cautious about the vaccine, that you are in some way an obscurantist or someone who's wanting to put your head in the sand. There are obviously threats that you might have to be very check out carefully. And I would say even in your metaphor, there's probably people, as Rav Cook Satsal taught us, who are probably better served by distancing themselves. I don't think there's one prescription for all. Uh, Rav Cook spoke to, and I think you'd appreciate this, this was one of his most famous letters, to his friend, his frenemy, (laughs) the the Ridvaz. The Ridvaz, who of course, knew what the Wild West of America was like. In other words, the Midwest specifically, where he was, you know, uh, uh, ran out of town on a rail when he tried to institute changes in the in, in the Schlachtos industry, ended up going to Eretz Yisrael and finishing and completing his masterpiece on the Yerushalmi, as you know, the Ridvaz. And, Rav, and, and he loved Rav Cook. Rav Cook helped get him his positions, and uh, they were on opposite ends of uh, Rav Cook reaching out to the non-religious, um, really becoming their Rebbe. Uh, Rav Cook was very, um, uh, obviously very open about what he thought the Kedusha of these souls were. And the Ridvaz said, you know, you're, you're marginalizing yourself. You know, you're such a wonderful person. By doing this, you're, you're risking you know, the ire of, of the collected rabbinic community. And there were stresses between the two of them. Um, and Rav Cook wrote him a letter and said, 
there are people who need to have what you have, which is a distrust and sometimes even a hatred of something that seems to be um, antinomian or seems to be going against uh, breaking things down. That's a good protection for you. God actually gave you that protection, that sort of immune factor, in order for you to react emotionally. I don't want anything to do with that. He says, but there are others. And whether you learn Rav Cook or not, uh, Rabbi Pupko, uh, in a way, others like yourself who are able to somehow have like a Kabbalistic sense of, of the holiness of everything. And they don't have that attitude. So I, I think Rav Cook instructs us not only the possibilities, but also it's okay if, if, if you're unnerved by it. You know, I, I know that, you know, what you're saying is almost a taunt to many members of the Haredi world, of the Aguda world. I, I'm just going to push back and say, well, for some people, perhaps that is the approach that they need. Th- they wouldn't oh, here's be a- what I would say. Here's Go ahead. Say. There's no question that everybody is different and some people can handle it. Although I believe everyone should be vaccinated like in the science arena, but in the, um, in the theological uh, arena, there's no question that everybody is, is different, communities are different. But what I would certainly assert is that those communities that can lead the bubble boy religious life, you know, where you have Kyrgyz Yale, or you have what I, you know, in Quebec, Brobiol, that's one thing. But to imagine that you can be in Williamsburg and be sequestered is insane. And if exposure is inevitable in the negative sense, the way to shore up the resistance to the negative aspects of exposure, the vaccine idea is a model. In other words, the the contradictions that exist in the Haredi world is this, let's cut off our kids from the world, but let's live in the middle of, you know, Williamsburg which doesn't make sense. They're going to see, they're going to do, they're going to read. So the only way to do that is for you to be in control of the exposure and to do it in a way that will strengthen the Yiddishkeit rather than leave them vulnerable. And again, you have to, if, you, if, if, if exposure is inevitable, you need to have the tools to navigate it. If you can live in a world without exposure, that's fine. But if, you, if exposure is inevitable, you need to be strengthened about it again. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think what's occurred, though, is an interesting phenomenon. My friend, uh, Professor Chaim Seyman, um discusses this in, in a number of blog posts that he wrote uh, when he was so impressed by the – and I wasn't, but he was so impressed by uh, the Siamashas and uh, what they were able to pull off. And what he saw in America was really this uh, rising uh, group, uh, a faction – of yeshivish Shabalabatim, who were very savvy about how to live in this world and had constructed, I wouldn't call it a bubble, because it's, it's almost like it has, it has all the outlets of what we would call the modern secular uh, accoutrements. It has almost everything, but within the yeshivish framework. And that is the one that comes up with the, you know, not only the learning in a cool way, which of doing the dafyomi and having the big seum and having the big parties and the kiddush clubs and having uh, within a protected zone, having, you know, uh, all the magazines that are, that are, that are glossy and fun to read. 
trips and vacations and uh, uh, you know, these these incredible European uh, jaunts, all under the glad kosher yeshivasha b'nei Torah. We have all these darshanim. Um, in other words, it's almost like we can give you all the fullness and richness oh, yeah. of, 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 of this life, but we can do it in this cool yeshivisha way. And you're not, you're not this uh, Yid and Meisharim who has his hands out, right. but you're actually a Macher, but it's a complete Torah version of that. And I think th- th- it's incredible how they've been able to accomplish that. No, I want to tell you something. You know, over my shoulder is a picture of my Zayn, Rabbi Eliezer Kukrizenfrau who was president of the Nasi of Agudas Al-Aban in, in, in his day. And his day was a while ago. And right. remember, he was rough in America before, uh, before and during World War II. And the stories I was told by my father, my late father, was that you know he would go to the meetings of the Agudas Al-Aban. And these were all old Litvisha Al-Abanim and, and from elsewhere who were serving in America when America didn't have the Torah it has today. And they, uh, when, when he was asked where his children were, and he said they were all in yeshiva learning for smicha, the other European rabbis would laugh at him because they would say to him, who are they going to be rabbis for in America? No one's going to need a rabbi. And what I would, when I see the Sima Shas, it's not just through the prism of my own, you know, 1970 cynicism, it's also through the prism of the memory of what people thought American jury would look like. And those who lived in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, if they were still alive, in other words, if you would take them to Madison Square, to City Park, or wherever the city was, City Field, I should say, um, I mean, what would they, in other words, what would they have done differently in the 50s and the 60s? If they knew what the world could look like in America with power, yeah. yeah. what would they have done differently? And I, I mean that for everybody. I mean, what would the concern and reform? I mean, listen, you have Jared Kushner and, and, and you know and David Friedman and the others sitting in the, in the arenas of power in Washington. Part of the animosity, part of it, is not just about policies and and xenophobia or whatever. But part of the reason so many liberal Jews hate. Jared Kushner. It's not just because he represents Satan, Donald Trump in their mind, but because it wasn't supposed to be this way. The Yarmulke was supposed to keep you out of the centers of power. And the fact that a kid with a keeper is sitting there, it blows up their entire cosmology of what American Jewish life was supposed to look like. You were supposed to have to get rid of all that stuff in order to have entree in the halls of power and influence and uh, and success in North America. And the fact that a kid with a keeper is sitting there, it drives them to distraction. It, 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 it completely repudiates the decisions that were made for over 100 years by the majority of Jews in America. Yeah, well, I, I, well, I agree. And I think that, uh, you know, to throw in a little movie reference here, uh, one of the great Jewish uh, directors who came out of the gritty New York scene, um, Sidney Lumet, you might know him, of course, of the, uh, uh, the director of The Verdict and, and a lot of other 12 Angry Men and other classics. He came out of the uh, uh, television world of the 50s and then produced some of the great films of the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, Sidney Lumet, one of his later films is called Q&A. 
And um, I haven't seen it in many, many years. But there's one scene where the mayor or some of the uh, city representatives are are, are, are are like brainstorming about are they going to get something done or not. And the character that's the uh, who's going to lay down one of the people who are talking about it is a guy with the yarmulke. There's not one reference to him being Jewish. It's not like he's he, he has a bagel in his hand. He has no. He's just par, a Jew. What year was that of, movie? Yeah. So I yeah. You're, but, he, but again, I'll tell you something else funny about this. Right, but again, the point though is is that yeah, he's a Jew. He's got a yarmulke. Yeah, he's but orthodox. Yeah. But yeah, that's that is the post-racial world. Right. That is absolute. When no one cares anymore. Right. He doesn't need to be like you know. The problem in, in, with anti-Semites is they care about us a little too much. <laughs> that's right. However, I, I, going back to Seyman's point, you're right. The idea that Jews are around, you can be from, and it really doesn't make a difference. And we we don't live in a racist society. No. And identity politics is really a straw man that we really need to push to the side. I I I, I think those are those was that that definitely is the truth. And I think that we need to embrace and push more. But, but you know, it's uh, a, but, just Seyman's point was, is that it's interesting that sh- the, when they shored up their distancing, the Yeshiva Shavelt, right. they were then able to create right. a dynamism. That, and that's what I think would have shocked these old rabbis that you were right. talking about. 100%. Okay, I understand. Okay, yeah, well, it's an, you're still from. Oh, we still got people learning. Not only are you learning, but you're taking over a stadium. Uh, you're bringing things in. You're doing things in such a big fashion. And yet, you know. You, no one cares. And we got a Davin Mincha, and you're sending your kids to Ponovich. That, I think, is something that is yeah. an incredible American success. You know, we I, mentioned. Go ahead. Did. You know, we have these commercials, you know, on TV. So whenever they want to show how, you know, how inclusive they are and how enlightened they are, they always have a woman in a hijab. You know, you have TV shows like this where there's a doctor with a hijab. Yes. You know, like, let's show the diverse. Let's show how accepting. Let's how inclusive we are. We'll have, you know, not only an African-American, we'll have a, you know, a, a Muslim with a hijab. Okay. Very nice. Why do they never have Jews with keepers? Okay. So there's the bad answer and the good answer. And, and, and both are correct. Both are correct. The bad answer is, well, because of this bizarre world we live in with critical race theory and intersectionality, although the Jew is technically a minority, really because they have power and they're white, they're part of white, white privilege, therefore always condemned to be in the basket of perpetrators and always excluded, no matter how much anti-Semitism there is, always excluded from the virtuous status of a victim because of, you know, of the bizarre theories of, of, of the ultra-left. That's the that's the bad reason why you don't have keep because a keeper is in fact not a symbol of uh, having a person with a keeper is not indicative of inclusion. The, the other good answer is what your answer, which is it's okay, it's like normal, it's perfectly American to wear a keeper. And an American and living in Canada all these years, I will tell you that as wonderful Canada is, it is not Canadian to be Jewish, and it's American to be Jewish, and that's what American Jews don't appreciate. How unique their exile, their gullus is. It is not, it is, will never be British or French to be Jewish. It'll never be Canadian to be Jewish. It's American to be Jewish. And that's what American Jews don't appreciate. I hope that continues. I mean, uh, you know, until I'd be as Gaia. Being Jewish 
and America is considered American to be Jewish. And that's what people don't understand. Jews outside of America don't get it either. It's it's sort of like um, you know just to mention uh, the um, you know Philip Roth in in two ways you have uh, his um, his classic defender of the faith Def- is it called defender of the Jews that's what it's or defender of the faith where uh, the little boy goes on top of the shul and uh, is, and they think he's threatening suicide and uh, he runs away from the from the strict rabbi and one of the issues that Roth raises there uh, it was uh, is that why is it that we are always looking, you know, how many Jews were on that plane <laughs> that, that went down? You know, we look at the obituaries and we look at a TWA flight that had that had land, that had crashed and we say, look at all the Jewish names there. And that's something that it's very hard uh, to shake. Um, and listen, that's something- we, listen, we do it. I do it. I do it. it, it there are two readers where every Jew does it. Number one, when the Nobel Prizes are announced and you want to know how many Jews got. And the other reason is if there's a uh, a fraud investigation or something, <laughs> you want to make sure that the accountant isn't Jewish or whoever. So, <laughs> right. So we, we are definitely we are definitely still very conscious of that. And I think um, you know using Roth as a little bit of a segue because um, I don't know if he ever got it perfectly. You know, in his, his one of the great books, he, that he, he was wrote. an authentic representation of one slice of the Jewish story. Yes, and, and if you read the beginning of the Plot Against America, right. which is really he really talks about this idea that we're Americans, we're you know, and, and we're Jews and Americans and and both completely. Um, and again. Uh, it's really a very strong statement of that way of, of of looking at things. But using Roth as a little bit of segue of looking for the Jew everywhere and finding the Jew, let's talk a little bit and close with this. What I did uh, when I saw Biden's um, nominations of who he's going to put into his cabinet, and I'm saying, hmm, Blinken, a Jew. Hmm, Janet Yellen, Jew. That's good. Mayorkas. Never heard of him before, but uh, sounds Ooh. I read about him. Now he's a Jew. Klein, uh, or his chief of staff. Yeah, that's good. And got Jews everywhere. Uh, you know, I know you've you've already mentioned on our program what's going on there. Um, uh, maybe we should just wrap it up with. Well, I tell you, obviously, what's happened is it's an anti-Semitic plot to blame the Jews when things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listen, he, uh, you know, um, Jonathan Pollard got out of uh, his uh, parole restrictions. Right, right. And actually, we did a podcast on that last so, night. You know, so listen, I actually visited Pollard in prison one time, and um, in the early years of his confinement, obviously, he suffered terribly. You know, people can certainly debate um, his sentencing. Uh, that many people sentenced during the same time period for a spy for enemies rather than a friend. We're given uh, lesser sentences, the uh, the Walker brothers, in other cases, but um, but there's no question he broke the law. There's no question he deserved to be punished. Question is how much he deserved to be punished. And um, but what was interesting is what people didn't understand about that story. What people didn't get about that story, as egregious as was the sentence, but again, he certainly he was a, he, he broke the law. He deserved to be sentenced, but. The life sentence was what was deeply troubling. And they question whether the deal, the plea deal was broken. But here's something else. Why was he treated that way? Why was he treated so severely? So the simple answer, ah, Casper Weinberg is a, a shaman. He went ahead and wrote that document. 
turns out it was actually debunked by later events because one of the reasons the Americans were so angry is that information that got to the Soviets that they thought had come through Pollard. It's a whole complicated thing with that, that the stuff that Pollard had given to the Israelis ended up in Moscow because of a KGB spy. It's a whole complicated claim. In fact, that was debunked because it turned out that the information the Soviets had, they didn't get because of Pollard, they got because of Aldrich Ames, who was only exposed at, much after Pollard was arrested. That's a different story. The question is why? Why was he given such a strong sense? And the reason he was given such a strong sentence, I believe, is because of a huge number of Jews who work in the American government, whose loyalties were never questioned. But when an American Jew was uh, was recruited uh, or volunteered to spy for the state of Israel, in the mind of many in Washington, that meant, you know, maybe we should be more careful with the access given to, uh, to Jews in government. And I believe he was given the the, the, the uh, inappropriate sentence or disproportionate sentence that he was given was so that he would sit there reminding American Jews to behave. And that's only because the, the good side of that story is the number of young Jews who go to apply for government positions, the NSA, the Justice Department, and, and, and the State Department, and there are a lot of them, who many of whom have on their resume I don't know. They went to BBYO. Uh, they went on this trip to Israel. Today, much later, they're on birthright. They remember they were in Hillel on their resume on campus, whatever it is. Uh, obviously, you know, not every Jew has that on their resume, but enough do. And yet, given all their ties to Jewish organizations or Israeli-centric or Zionist organizations, no one in America ever questioned their credentials or their loyalties. And they were allowed to serve at the highest levels of American government. Let anyone question the loyalties. But again, the back of the non-Jews' mind after Pollard is a concern. And the reason Pollard was kept in prison as long as he was, was to remind every American Jew in government to behave. And that's obviously wrong, but that's why he was kept in prison. He was, he was kept in prison so long because there are so many Jews in government. And so let's hope, you know, he definitely, it's a great theory about that. Uh, it's unfortunate that Pollard had to endure it and uh, endure a lot of uh, travails in terms of his physical health. But I'm with you. I actually, you know, I don't believe it, it should have been, I think it should have been understood and it shouldn't have been the, the prime um, issue in the hearts and minds of all the, the Jewish lobbyists. I think that uh, I, I mentioned this last night on a podcast I did with someone who could have been his chaplain in North Carolina and just missed by being that. You can hear that on our, 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 our platform. But as I said, I think we expended too much political capital uh, in that way. And I, I worried about the amount of... Uh, I want to tell you something. ...that was done to get him out. Um, I want to tell you something. I'm not telling you I agree with with what was said, but let me tell you something that was said by somebody that every American Zionist, by a person every American Zionist respects, the late Charles Krauthammer. Sure. Late Charles Krauthammer wrote unabashedly pro-Israel in the most eloquent way and articulate and persuasive way. He had access to sometimes to people in government. He was very helpful to the Jewish people. And I didn't, this is not hearsay, I was sitting next to him when he was asked the question. He was a guest of our synagogue, and somebody asked him the question about Jonathan Pollard. And Charles Krauthammer, whose Zionist and Jewish credentials are beyond reproach, 
Charles Krauthammer said he's a criminal and a traitor. He should die in prison. Okay, that's what Charles Krauthammer said. Now, uh, when asked about the disproportionate sentence, he says they should have been given longer sentences about the other people who had spied. That's Charles Krauthammer. So, you know, I know for many Jews he became a cause to live. I understand that. And that speaks well of us. The Jew is suffering. He tried to do good for Israel. You have to help him. You have to do whatever you can for him. But again, what he did, and the fact that the Israelis facilitated it, was reckless. It was reckless. And yes, I know the arguments. I know this was intelligence that maybe the Americans were by treaty obligated or by agreement obligated to give to the Israelis. I know all the arguments. I've read, I know all the arguments. I've read Blitzer and I've read his supporters, everything. I know the arguments on both sides of this about who broke the plea deal. And I know what Blitzer says about him. I know the whole story and I know the good and the bad. And I know intimately his family, by the way, and what happened there. It's, this is a complicated story. But the bottom line is that Jews have to appreciate is that he did break the law. And he broke his oath. He swore an oath. He broke that. And uh, it is possible that had been had more humility been exhibited and more um, remorse been expressed, that his fate would have been different. That could be. We'll never know. Well, as we, as he, as we expect his immigration to Eretz Israel soon, hopefully uh, that will be a harbinger maybe uh, to end with Bias Goyot Tzedek. That should be harbinger no, we should for us. Well, and I believe he was right. well-intentioned, but we need to understand the law. No, no, I, again, especially as we stand there on the cusp of, 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 of thanking God for having this country. Um, we definitely have to realize what allegiance to this country means and Hakaras Hatov to the Shluchim that HaKadosh Baruch yeah. sent for us. Just tell you one last, just wrap it up. Um, they say that, um, you know, when they were speaking to Reb Chaim uh, before he died, um, and he was somehow um, able to... Uh, according to the story, be able to look into the future. And uh, people were already talking then at the beginning of the 19th century about the move of Jews to the United States. And he said, this is going to be the last station before Gula. But then tears were... Read what Ramesha wrote about America. I mean, people who came understood what a bad Gullus looks like, understood and continue to understand how wonderful America is. Right. But, but, but then they said tears were streaming down his eyes. And they said, you know, Rebbe, if I was vain, why are you crying? And he said, this, this was Zayna It's the last step, but it's going to be fraught with difficulties. Yeah. Let's hope that what we're seeing now is some of the allevi- alleviating some of those difficulties. And let's hope again that uh, uh, yeet in the cabinet or not, what's uh, ahead for us as America goes to lead the world is a pathway for the redemption itself. That's it, my friends, for this week, wrapping it up all over the place from the, (laughs) I want to eat turkey, watch football. And, uh, and of course, Rabbi Pupko's own video about how to make that turkey available, (laughs) (laughs) available not only from his shul's website, but I guess uh, you could probably search for it and find it. It's pretty good. uh, uh, On TikTok. A very very good recipe indeed. Take care, everybody. See you next week. Be well. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.